Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, I'm pretty excited for this week. As I think everyone knows, this person means a lot to me. We're talking to the great Dave Wakeling of the English Beat and General Public. Um, I have talked openly and loudly and regularly on here how much the English Beat mean to me. And, the, and General Public too, and Dave and Roger. Thankfully, Roger was on here a few years ago before he died. It's one of my proudest moments. Well, I'd never talked to Dave, and this is what I would say is sort of almost a leisurely conversation um, between just a couple of guys. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying we're best friends, but it's more of a conversation than it is an interview, and it touches on everything. It may be too leisurely, too insidery for people who aren't as invested in the arc of their careers as I am, but um, if you are and you love them, hopefully I think you're going to learn a lot in here. We get into the ups and downs, uh, the ups and downs, not just of the business, not just of his career, but in, including the relationships between him and Roger and the other guys in the band. Um, why the general, why general public didn't have more success. What happened? What happened with his solo album, which was okay. It was kind of a non-starter. And then what he's been doing the last 30 years, just about, which I think as most people know is just relentless touring. Um, so we get into a lot of that. I'm a big fan of the third general public album that was produced by Jerry Harrison called Rub It Better. And this is a song off that album called uh, It Must Be Tough, which I think is one of their finest moments. Now, let me give you guys some advice. <laughs> uh, let me, this is embarrassing and I'll give you some advice. So about 10 minutes before Dave and I hopped on Zoom, it starts to hit me how much I really owe to my discovery of the English beat. It's one of the most impactful experiences of my life because finding them made me realize the music that I like most of all. And as a, if you love music, you know that that music changes your entire life. And I started to get kind of emotional about it about 10 minutes before Dave hops on Zoom. And now it only lasts a minute or two. I, you know, I compose myself. I'm all fine. I'm good by the time we get back on Zoom. But as soon as I see his face and we start talking, the, the emotions kind of overwhelm me again. And so like a total Bush League chump, I start crying at the very beginning of this interview. Now, I'm not blubbering, like, you know, sobbing or anything, but I'm getting emotional. Now, let me give you some advice. If you want to come off as a professional... Cry at the end. Go cry at the beginning, you know? Now, luckily, he talked to me for almost two hours. So over that time, hopefully, I regained myself and earned a little bit of respect and some professionalism out of that. Um, but it took a while. My gosh. So anyway, I don't recommend getting too overwhelmed. As you guys know, I'm pretty enthusiastic, and I like to tell the people I love that I love them. But... Um, this, it just, I was overwhelmed. I don't know why. It was just that day. But anyway, I love Dave Wakeling, Raking Roger, The English Beat, General Public, more than I love most things that have ever existed. And so it was really great to talk to Dave. I love him a lot. He called me from his home in Southern California. Foremost, yeah. thank you so much. I was thinking, I can't believe I'm getting choked up. The last 10 minutes or so, I was kind of getting in the in the zone to talk, and it was flooding back to me. 
what a big part of my life you have been. And I started to get kind of choked up. I don't know why. Never done that before. But anyway. I think uh, I think the pandemic has made everybody feel more emotional about those key points in their early life where oh. life seemed as, as though it was good. Yeah. <laughs> Remember those days when life was good? It was good. There was optimism and stuff. So yeah. I think, uh, nostalgia and a bit of melancholy. But it's the same for me. Uh, it's two two songs for me. Don't uh, walk away, Renee. The Four Tops version. Yes. And uh, Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones. Oh. I, I heard them back to back in the back of my dad's car after a swim meet when I was 12 or 13. Uh-huh. I'd come out with a handful of gold, which meant that I got the radio on and I got a soda and there's usually some sort of gift fishing tackle or something in, in the trunk. So I was sitting there with my orange soda, orange Fanta, I think, and um, Four Tops were first. And I wasn't crying, but I could just feel water running down yeah. my face. But there yeah. was no sobbing with this. Then Ruby Tuesday just did me in. It was like just waterfalls. And uh, whenever I hear those songs still. Yeah. Yeah, the they do it. Thing, you know, I don't, I don't tear up, but I have right. the same feelings. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why it was hitting me so hard right now. Um, you know, I was going to mention this later, but you just brought it. Uh, what you're saying right now is very interesting to me, because when I think of Dave Wakeling's songwriting, to me, there is as much Motown infused in it as there is ska, especially as by the third English beat album yeah. and then on to the general public stuff. Yeah, a bit more as, soul in it. Was that, I mean, are you are you conscious of that as the sound of English beat is evolving over time? Or is that something you piece, are you even aware of it? Because it's so clear to me that Motown is a big deal for you. It had been a big deal before Scar, really, because just as a preteen, uh, we were lucky in England. There was only Top of the Pops and Radio 1. So everything got played on the same station and in the same show. So you'd see the Rolling Stones, the Four Tops, mm-hmm. the Kinks, um, Diana Ross and the Supremes, all on the same television show on a Thursday night. So we kind of grew up on it. It was very big in England. It was called Tamla Motown. Yeah. It's own label, Tamla. But I think getting caught up in the two-tone thing, that puts an emphasis on the scar part of it and the reggae parts of it. More reggae, but I had a lot of reggae records. Scar came in like later teenage years because they used to play it on the football terraces to keep the skinheads happy or quiet. <laughs> and it may also have been that having learnt the scar bit, it was going to take us a little while more to learn a great soul beat together, a bit more of a challenge, another challenge. So I think that was part of it, but it had always been an influence. You and the specials both on those second albums, and this is true for a lot of, even the new wave artists, I mean, all the synth pop artists, the ABC and the Human League and all those, the second, that second album, they, it's like they don't want to be pigeonholed as whatever they were on the first. And so they want to expand that sound. And you guys yes. with Wappen, Wappen, what happened, whatever, you guys kind of did that. It still, it still sounds ska and reggae, but to me, it almost sounds more dub. Like I'm imagining Don Letts and his dub yeah, stuff is heavily influencing you. 
I think some of it is, is if you have a first album that's really successful, it almost becomes too much. Mm. And that after a year or so of it, the adulation and working longer hours than I'd ever worked in my life, it all becomes a bit too much. Mm. And so I think those second albums can often be a reflection of people dealing with being in the public eye or being famous for the first time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which adds a whole extra dimension on it to writing the songs or being in a group or even playing shows, you know. As soon as you get on television, then you can't really go in a shop mm -hmm. <laughs> without people, hey. Yeah. You're that bloke from Madness, aren't you? You know. <laughs> I just say yes and take it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, okay, that makes sense. I we're going to bounce around a little bit. I wanted to uh, mention something. A couple of weeks ago, I watched the movie Head Office for the first time in a while, and there you are. You guys are singing. You know, crying your own shoulder. Movies have been pretty integral, I think, in breaking you specifically in the States. Do you remember anything about Head Office specifically? Unfortunately, that movie kind of bombed, but I think it's a fun movie. The lead star, the female lead, ended up marrying the drummer from General Public. So, so, so we became quite good friends for no way. a few years there, yeah. It, yes, it was a bit of a stretch, wasn't it? That, that and the John Hughes films. Well, that's, of course, what I was going to lead to. Rotating heads on Ferris Bueller. You doing She's also, Having a Baby. Um, Tenderness is in Weird Science. Yeah. Um, Another film, not a John Hughes film, uh, quite a, a blockbuster film. It might come to me. Tenderness was in that. Uh, it was in twice, once during the wedding scene and once in the, on the tracks on the way out. Right. What the heck was that film called? Uh, I can't remember. I'm sure yeah. I know it. I can't oh, remember. Um, and Save It for Later was in um, another one about... Uh, 16 Candles, maybe? No, it was a Building a Barn. Woody Harrelson, Building a Barn in oh. Amish Territory. Oh. And, okay. Uh, that helped put it on the map. Uh, yeah. I'll have to... Uh, do I remember the name of these? I thought I knew them all. I'm interview. sure. I'm surprised. I don't know them. And it it opens it up to a completely different audience mm -hmm. that might not listen to the radio as much or never been to one of your concerts mm -hmm. and don't really know who you are. Mm -hmm. And also, it kind of cements your status 
amongst your own fans than those people around the fringes of that. Mm-hmm. Because well, you're in a you're in a big movie, so you must be good now, right? Right. It does uh, it does nothing but good, really. But then I suppose we were lucky when we came along for that sort of thing because the MTV world had made soundtracks for movies mm-hmm. a much bigger part of the whole experience mm-hmm. and not just the artistic side of it, although the directors like John Hughes have got massive record collections and were quite specific about mm-hmm. what mood they were trying to add to a particular scene. But on the marketing side of it also, being able to run a video with clips of the movie on MTV with a popular group, or sometimes they'd do two or three videos off a soundtrack, throw them to the wall, see what stuck, you know. Uh, But it was a a massive marketing boost for the movie at much lower rates than if you were to try and buy television time to advertise it, you know? Totally, yeah. It was quite clever in that way. I had Tarquin Gotch on here. Oh, go ahead. We did I'll Take You There for the movie. We're going to, yeah, I'm I'm Uh, coming up to that one. They knew it was a difficult topic. They didn't know how they were going to sell the movie. So they thought if they could have two or three hit singles on MTV, pushing scenes from the movie, people would go before they knew what it was about. <laughs> I was, love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the marketing plan on that one. And, uh, and so the, although we felt like Kings, you know, the promotion of I'll Take You There was enormous. For the from the movie and the record company, it, it got so widely liked. I think it was the most played video the one week on MTV, mm-hmm. twenty seven plays or something. They said, but it was still a bargain for them mm-hmm. compared to the alternative ways of um, 
advertising in cinemas or on net network or cable television. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I was going to say I had Tarquin Gotch on here a few Didn't years ago. Yeah. Did, was he your manager too? Cause I'm pretty oh, sure he was Roger's manager. Uh, Tarquin <laughs> was one of our first um, A&R guys. He yeah. was the head of A&R at Arista Records where we signed and um, him and Simon Potts. Then he became our manager as, for general public. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to be ranking Rogers manager. Mm, that's what I thought. So he's, he has the ear or of John Hughes. John Hughes is looking to him to help him, you know, find songs for his movies. Did you ever meet or interact with John Hughes very much? Cause he sure used you yeah. a lot. Okay. Yeah, no, I went to his house and we played this great game where he didn't have his records cataloged alphabetically, but oh. in terms of where they thought that they fitted musically. Oh, so Echo and the Bunny Men, Psychedelic First were close to each other, you know? Uh-huh. And I said, wow, that's amazing. He was a bit obsessive. <laughs> I said, that's amazing just to even be bothered to do it. I'd <laughs> <laughs> get him off the floor, just put him on the shelf. <laughs> And he said, go on, then test me, test me. Uh-huh. And it was a whole big, long wall of records, and I didn't catch him out. Really? He'd get within a, a foot of it straight away, like, it's about right, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> do another one, do another one. Wow. Uh, which was odd. He wow. came backstage at a concert, and um, <clears throat> he shook my hand and said, anybody who's got balls enough to put a bassoon on a pop song and have a hit is my kind of guy. <laughs> It's <laughs> done very nicely, and yeah. uh, through working with us, that he got to meet Tarquin. Mm. Okay, and, and Tarquin became a music supervisor to him. Mm. And at that point, I didn't then have as much contact with my mate John as I had mm. with Tarquin's help. <laughs> yeah, I could. I believe that. So when you do, she's having a baby. Do you know if? John reached out to a dozen of his favorite artists and said, will you try writing me a theme song? And he's going to pick the one he likes. You know what the selection process I was? So. I don't think so. Um, we both recently started a family ourselves. We both got like quite young kids, and we discussed it. Uh, the differences, you know, uh, the difference in your life. And I wished I'd kept it, or I don't know which way it ended up. But you know, like they used to do postal chess games. We sent the same page a piece of paper with lyric ideas on it 
and suggestions and thoughts. And I sent him some, he sent some back. I sent it to him and he sent it back. A couple of times it went round and, and we called the mood and the lyrics from that. Wow. Young, young fathers, I don't know if it's still the same, but young fathers suffered from feeling jealous. You love your kids like you miss your wife. Oh, no. <laughs> Whereas now I think it's, it's more arranged for men to be more involved with being a dad or a parent yeah. from early on. Yeah. Um, so that they might not necessarily feel like they're missing anybody at all, you know. Yeah. Uh, we were caught in that sort of halfway house between World War II and Woke. <laughs> yeah, very so, true. And, and like all the other lyrics, really, you gather quite a lot of insight about where you were at at the time to see things in the way you did, you know. I would always try and find things that were heartfelt and then I'd look around and see, did I see that going on with other people? Mm. And I would try and focus the lyrics because you could write a book of lyrics for each song, you know, mm -hmm. but I would pick and choose and edit the ones that I thought were the most personal but also the most universal, you know. Mm -hmm. um, not every line, but... Sure. The key, the key lines, you know. But now looking back on those after 40 years, you can go to those key lines and you go, oh, I know where you were at. <laughs> I know what was on your mind. That's right. And, uh, that's that's right. some of it you've learned. Yeah. And some of it's still a mystery. Yeah, I could see that. Um, okay. I've got a lot of different things I want to go. Let's. I want to talk about lyrics for a minute because you have two of the greatest sex double entendre songs of all time. Of course, there's Save It For Later, but there's also Come Again. Come Again, I I love that song. And I've always thought, ooh, what a devilishly clever way to enter, to work in, you know, sex with being born again. Or I imagine you be, it's late in a hotel and you can either jack off or you can pull out the Bible in the bedside table. And the guy's trying I to figure it out. It. 
and I decided to pull out the Bible. You I did? Ran, now, that's what I've always wondered. Is this a real story? Tell the me the story. I ran across the room in the dark to the drawer, pulled out this book, came back to the bed, switched the lights on, and it was the complete works of the Buddha. Ooh. It was a Japanese hotel in San Francisco. So I'd made a dive for the Bible and got the complete <laughs> works of the Buddha, which was really odd. Uh-huh. And then the night got odder, really. I read a bit, and then I laid on the bed, and it was as if two apparitions came up, white sort of protoplasm sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Men, longish hair, sort of, a bit hard to tell. Okay. And then they went, and became one person, and then disappeared. Really? And so I said, oh, so Jesus and Gaetano were the same person then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that's and, uh, based on a real thing. I just yes. thought you were like, let's get clever about singing about sex. Well, it was um, the come again part of it. In England, when you don't understand somebody or what they mean, you go, uh, come again. Yeah. So it's quite a known phrase. It was also then about Jesus coming again, because mm-hmm. there was a lot of that, that type of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But also it was Ronald Reagan He's coming back for a second term. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Ronald Reagan, Jesus, orgasms, and um, earthquakes. Yeah. Wave, the waves were picking up across the bay. And yes, the earth moved for me in a different <laughs> kind of way. What would you say? It was, a, it, it was an attempt at a quad tundra. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. I uh, I've, I assume there was so much more going on. That's it. It's just such a, you are the best at that kind of stuff, Dave. You do that better than, I mean, on songs like that or Save It For Later or many others, you have the way of just twisting and getting all these triple quad entendres going on in there. I Amazing. love words. I love words and I love ideas. And um, once I've got my hooks into something, I've got an idea going. Not so much now, but back then it would just become obsessive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even still, if I get an idea for a lyric or a song, it will roll around my head like all day for a few days. You know, it becomes irritating. Like, shut up, <laughs> listen to something else. But um, I think it's the words more than anything else that fascinate me. Huh. Um, the different order the words can be in and the different meanings you can get. I even noticed that if you, you can sing a word and if you sing it one way, it means one thing. And if you sing it another way, it means quite a different thing, but it's the same word. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit like we were talking about watching each other speak on screen. So that was interesting to find out. You can sing something ironically or sardonically, <laughs> and it can come across quite differently yeah. if you say deadpan or That's right. genuinely. You know, I'm curious about that second general public album because it felt I've always felt like you they kind of hung you guys out to dry. I mean, tenderness is this big hit. I don't know what comes. I don't know what the second single is off that album. Then the f- second album comes out and. Too much or nothing. I remember seeing that video, but not on MTV. I'd see it on like night tracks 
or Friday at the end of Friday night videos. So already I can tell that less attention is being paid to this second album and then nothing a, after that too. It was, it was unfortunate. Uh, it had started off very nicely, as you say, with tenderness and IRS records were with A&M records. And then Miles Copeland decided to move IRS records to Universal, I think Universal, and they did it two weeks before Nevi Had Done That came out as the oh. second single to follow Tenderness. So the old record company didn't want to work it because the band had just moved to another label mm-hmm. and the new label had no interest in working it because they had no stake in the record. Exactly. The radio guy apologised to me. Years he's apologised a few times because <laughs> he knew that we were going to be one of the victims of it. Mm-hmm. It was a shame because um, never you'd done that. At least they worked it at clubs, and we we did a terrific remix, twelve inch mix of it. And never you'd done that one side, hot you cool the other side. Mm. Uh, ended up being the number one dance track of the year on the end of the year Billboard charts. Good. Do the Vogue was number two. I, so I bought I bought about six copies and clipped it out and put it in Christmas cards to family members. Because <laughs> number two. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But that was so, a, a consolation prize in some ways. And um it started a downward trend then because we started up with the new record label on the back of a song that hadn't done anything. Mm. So we weren't priority there. And uh, there were quite some ructions, I think. I don't know the full details, but AM was a very paternal, benevolent, musicians first kind of label at the time. Mm. At least, probably still is, I don't know. Universal was the first taste of corporate mm-hmm. world, you know. And, that makes uh, sense. Was it MCA, I think? Ooh, that it might be it. That sounds right. MCA sounds MCA, right. Yeah. And I think. They get absorbed into Universal, did they? I think you're right. Yeah. It affected a lot of people, not just you. Now, and that was a much harsher world there. So, is that um, 
it was much harder for us to get into the record company to meet them, whereas you used to be able, there wasn't any security. Yeah. Well, well, there was on the A&M lot, mm -hmm. but not on the IRS buildings. You could just go in and talk to your friends, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas it was all waiting rooms and appointments and, oh, sorry, he's, he's on a conference call. It's going to mm -hmm. be another 45 minutes, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it, and they told me it was the same for them. If they wanted to meet any of their seniors at MCA, it was really hard work to get a meeting, especially Big if business. they didn't want to have a meeting or they, yes. didn't want, they didn't want to give you what you wanted. So yeah. the whole thing would quite easily slip behind a, a corporate wall. And uh, we weren't uh, able to, to breach it, really. What uh, now is this what led to you guys breaking up? Because when I had Roger on here five years ago or six, even I was asking him about So Excited, which was his, you know, kind of solo hit. And yeah. he had told me that that was a song you two had worked on together. Had there been a third yes. general public album, it was meant for that. So why did you guys break up? I wrote the lyrics for that. So did you really? I didn't know that. It's about okay. condoms. <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up and give it all to you. Ooh, you got me so excited. <laughs> More <laughs> double entendres. <laughs> can't help it. Whilst we were making the second general public record, Roger had been disappointed that the record company hadn't picked as many of his songs as he had hoped or expected. So he wouldn't stop going on and on and on about making a solo record, mm. even whilst we were recording it. Make a solo record. I'm going to make a solo record. Make a solo record. And it went on so much. And I said, well, you know, if, if you make a solo record, say you've got a really great song, what album would you put it on? Mm -hmm. You know, it's buttering your bread both sides, isn't it? And I said, what would you do? You'd keep the four best songs for yours and, and then offer mm -hmm. the next four good, next best mm -hmm. four ones to general public. I said, that's not going to work. It hasn't worked the first time, has it? With yeah. the record company saying they didn't want this track, they didn't want that sort of thing. And he went on and 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 on on about it. And we were on an aeroplane landing in Boston. And he said, 
I still want to do that solo album, you know. I said, good, you should. What? Really? He said, I said, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. No, 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 no. He says, I don't want to split up general public. I said, you just have for the last three months. And uh, he brought out his solo album, A Radical Departure, it was called, starting off with a song that I wrote the lyrics for. No way. I didn't realize. <laughs> wow. So that was kind of ironic. What about, how do you look back on your solo album? Because, well, it was an accident. It went wrong. We had dreadful troubles. IRS was going through poor times. They'd made a, a movie about heavy metal. Mm. Years, part three, or I don't forget, something like that. And the line of Western civilization. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, it had bombed and they'd lost millions of dollars. And uh, Miles Copeland had asked me to come to Los Angeles to make a record and said I should surround myself like Sting. He said, you surround yourself with people who you think are better than you and it draws you up to their level. I said, that sounds fantastic. And so I met a big producer who put together a, an all-star lineup of famous names. Waddy Wachtel was one of them. Oh, he's been on here. And and we rehearsed, and it sounded great. And they gave a budget, and IRS said, go back and see if you'll do it for half that. And I was like, not really my job. All right, fine. Hmm. So I did it, and they weren't thrilled. But they said, well, we could make a different type of record. We could try and record more of it ensemble, and it had a bit more of a live feel to it instead of tracking every track separately. I said, um, and we can do some programming for you in the other room. That's cheaper. So we we can't make the same record, but we can make a record. So I was like, great, wow. Turns out I'm a good negotiator. <laughs> so I went back and told them the good news, and they said, ah, uh, it's still a bit much. What could they do for half of that? I'm like, that's embarrassing. <laughs> but I did, and they said no. They said there was another famous group that wanted to come in and kind of jam and use them to help write and see if they could write an album in the studio. He said, and they're offering us 300,000. So, you know, we can't, we can't use that time for less than 100,000, even though we love you and we love the songs. Yeah, so yeah. that was the end of that. And then I found another producer who could do it for this much, much lower amount. Uh, but it would nearly all be programmed mm. uh, with some guitar and bass and drum overdubs. But he, he had a really good feel with the machines, which could be a bit brutal at the time. He, he was, seemed really good at it. And I told him what the budget was, and he said, okay. And I went back to IRS with the happy news, and guess what they said? <laughs> Cut it in half. Can he do it for less? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said no and went on to do a really great XTC album. Oh. And so one of the chaps that I'd written a couple of songs with, he said he could do it for that price because you could do it from home and he would program it. He was a, a great songwriter. He'd been one of the co-writers of You're the Automatic, Wherever You're mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pointer Sisters. Yeah, but actually, yeah, he'd been one of the co-writers on that, which I thought was good. But he didn't really have a great feel on the machines. They were new to him. Mm. 
and we had agonizing moments where <laughs> just sounded robotic. And then the only way that you could play to it made you feel like you were playing robotic as well, you know? And it became tortuous. And the project fell to pieces. Ugh. And a few weeks or months later, I got a heads up that they were bringing out an album of those songs. And a band that owed money to Miles Copeland, he'd given it to them and said, put some lead guitar on this and mix it. That's it what no warning is? Yes. So there's hardly any of me playing on it at all. It's some guide vocals. We never finished a lot of the really? vocals. And uh, I, at that point, I made a mistake because I confronted Miles about it, and he gave me the opportunity to, to redo some of the vocals. And I was being a purist at the time. I did, you know, having tried to try and get it right and not been able to, and the, the chap I'd made it with was apologetic, understood the limitations of the technology that or our inability with it. I should have took the opportunity in retrospect to because I could it turned out I couldn't stop it. I thought there might be a chance, you know. But uh, it got quite close, and I spoke to a litigator in New York, and he said, well, you've got two choices. How would you like to spend the next two years in a New York court with a megalomaniac millionaire? Oh boy. Or how would you like to put your head under a rock for the next three months, forget it ever happened, and I'll get you off the label? And I said... Pass the rock. <laughs> <laughs> and so wow. I did. I had but no it, idea. Still, it still hurts because um, the songs, one of the ones that bothers me most, Sex With You, it was meant, had loads of fuzz guitar on it. Really? Fuzz guitar meets T-Rex. Uh-huh. You know, or Spirit in the Sky. Uh-huh. And for some reason, they took, there's none of my guitars on that song at all. Uh-huh. And they just did some, this band was a kind of 70s blues rock band. So they, uh-huh. they noodled over it. And, uh, and it turned out the reason for it, 
again, business, you see, just the business part of it. Miles at IRS had a commitment to deliver so many albums per quarter. Otherwise, they lost the percentage of the advance due to them. Oh, okay. Their company. And it, my album was one of them, so it was coming it. out. <laughs> Sheesh. Um, I've always wondered, because it's. I think it went out of print pretty quickly. It's hard to find. I found it in a used shop about 10 or 15 years ago. And, um, I mean, I love you, so I love it, but I don't really love it. I like the song Sensation on there. That's pretty good. Yeah, lovely song, isn't it? were some good songs and some good lyrics but the uh yeah. the presentation was was shoddy to say the least yeah. and i, I should have hung in really i should you know it, it, that was a mistake so okay i gotta i have never understood how you were even selected to sing i'll take you there because as i i mean i was so happy to have you back but general public and even english beat had not to my knowledge, been a concern for a good seven or eight years by the time that Greenpeace. what's that? I was working at Greenpeace and this guy phoned me up. He was just starting as a music supervisor and he became a really big, successful music supervisor uh, fairly quickly, I think. Mm. And he said he had this idea to have general public do a track. Would I be interested? And I said, yes. He said, I've got a list of songs that I'm considering for the film. Could I fax you it over? And he did. And I took it back, and me and the wife looked it through. Uh, they had a hankering for us to do Stuck in the Middle with You. Really? <laughs> wow. Um, I get it. Threesome. Okay, Stuck in the Middle. I get it now. Right. Yes. And me and the missus thought, I'll take you there would be a better one. Hmm. Particularly because... It was obviously high, highly influenced by a famous Scar reggae track that had come out two or three years before, The Liquidator. Mm-hmm. Very similar bass line. Which, funnily enough, used to be the theme song that uh, West Bromwich Albion soccer team oh, ran out to. Wolverhampton used it too, and I think Chelsea did as well at some point, but West Bromwich always said that they were the first, uh, the liquidator. So I thought, well, that's good. You could do that song and you could mix the two songs up. So we we took loads of parts of the, from the liquidator. 
shout the name of your football team there. <laughs> and we fitted those into it as well. And as it was a contentious subject matter for the movie, they decided to push heavily on the soundtrack and MTV. And it just catapulted us. It did. So uh, mm. I, I, I didn't end up, I was sort of coming to the end of my term at Greenpeace anyway. Mm. We'd just finished one big project, a solar-powered album of live songs mm. called Alternative NRG. I know that. Uh, I remember that. I had that. Did you? Yeah. 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 We made a, uh, turned an 18-wheeler into a big solar, batteries on the inside, yeah. panels on the roof, and a bit of an exhibition room with a couple of computers and so that people could give talks about renewable energy in it. Uh, it ended up going to Europe being painted kind of psychedelic and ran raves for Greenpeace at festivals. <laughs> but at the time, we used it to record U2 and REM, all sorts of great artists on it. Right. And then we mixed the album with Solar Power as well. And then we drove the truck Cyrus, Persian name for the sun. We drove to the mastering plant and they took a cable lead from the truck and they made the original masters of the, the album. So all the way through had been Solar Power. We didn't use any plastic, so we, at the time there weren't any good hard cardboard boxes, so we did a sort of wraparound sleeve, uh, but it was all 100% post-consumer art paper from this company in Japan that I think REM and U2 went on to continue to use for their albums, and they became like quite a thing. And the same with the ink. It was all Japanese again, I think, soy-based. Wow inks, solvent inks, uh, which they used as well. The only slight shame, it was quite a bit of cardboard. Mm. When we wrapped it round, once you put the wrapping on it, it compressed it and it would still slide out of those mm -hmm. don't steal this CD yeah. safety holders, you know? Remember. So they ended up having to put another wrapper around of cardboard, which made the artwork look great, big long strip of it, but... Mm. I thought it looks like a bit too much cardboard, doesn't it? For mm. You know, reuse. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Save the planet. Um, okay. When I had Roger on here, he alluded to the Rub It Better period as being kind of a dark time. That is one of my favorite albums of all time. It's my favorite general public album. Ooh. It must be tough and never not alone to me are two of your greatest compositions of What's all. Yeah, And um, I had Jerry Harrison on here a couple of years ago. We talked about it. I know your dad died during the, during the creation of the album, which probably fed some of it. But according to Roger, it just sounded like there was a lot of dark. Those were dark days. It took like a year to put it out. I think you guys were on different sides of the fence of what you wanted to do in terms of reuniting or touring. And I think it got ugly. I don't know. Can you what can you say about it? It had started off very well working at my house in the pre-production part of it and finishing some of the writing. And then I got called to England. My dad died and I was 
gone for about six weeks and came back and the songs had travelled quite a long way in that time. And so I had to do what I could or what I was allowed to. A couple of them I'd add start again, but some of the others I just had to add this or that or the other or something to try and give it more the flavour I'd imagined when I'd written it. And I thought it came out all right. There was an incident, not between me and Roger, but there was an incident. We'd gone up to Richmond to make the record because Jerry didn't want to be away from his family. Unfortunately, my wife was eight months pregnant. My son was three and he was in the studio and he got hurt, ostensibly by somebody trying to protect him more more protecting the gear, I think. And he got his head split and no apologies were forthcoming. Mm. And uh, my wife was eight months pregnant and she had quite a strong opinion. Mm. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it quickly spun out of control to the point where certain people in the project kind of went into hiding for a couple of three days, left mm. town because of the atmosphere. And... There was a big meeting afterwards and we carried on like the following week. Okay. But that certainly didn't help matters. Although I was still on friendly terms and, and working with both Roger and Jerry. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the project finished off happily enough, but it didn't perform. The first single that came out was... I think it was Rainy Days. was and it didn't it, the first week it was on every radio station and the second week it was on three and for some reason a cost of some point i don't know it didn't include i'll take you there uh-huh which i thought was weird i was I like can, I, can we have a sticker then that says doesn't include the hit single i'll take you there just to get something <laughs> out of it yeah so they didn't put that on there rainy days had an anchor to it and it was dropped. You know, they did bring out 
the cover of um, yeah. Warm Love, Van Morrison. Yeah, with uh, the song Handgun on the other side. Handgun got a bit more traction. We got on a um, pretty big TV show playing it. Uh, and it got some airplay, but um, a bit too controversial to cross over to the mainstream. And so it fizzled out. I think Roger told me that you guys were offered a million pounds or a million bucks to tour. And I think you turned it down. I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but. He seemed a little frustrated by that. You know, they want to be in the general public business. They're offering tons and tons of money and it didn't work out. No, I wish that was true. <laughs> I had a joke. Oh. No, uh, the million dollars was for a year's worth of working for two or three grand a night to try and rebuild a sales base. Mm-hmm. The, the offers to do shows, the money wasn't as much as I could make playing in a bar down the road in Newport Beach, especially if you've got a tour bus. So we actually did one tour for about three weeks of the major cities, mm-hmm. which went quite well, but the record was off the radar mm-hmm. and the other offers that were coming in were, were paltry. I don't mean to contradict Roger no, when he's not that's, to discuss it. That explains but, it. Uh, uh, it. It million dollars would have been mm-hmm. terrific. Yeah, but um, there wasn't okay. there wasn't the following on from rainy days. The business opportunities closed down. And, I'm uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, and I was in college when that came out. And rainy days got some fair attention. You, I think I've seen you in concert. I was trying to think at least five, six, seven times, and a few of those were in Salt Lake City. You were always really good to us. I remember yeah. standing in line for hours to see you for the first time this is when it, this these are the thoughts that were choking me up earlier and my ticket stub says bang because you were going by bang or something at the time and it was my first time seeing you and um i'll never forget it club deviate in like yeah, 1998 or 1995 or something like that that's what i did after the general public thing just petered out i came back home and with two of the musicians who were in the live general public band and one of their mates who was a drummer in a previous group, we put together a four piece called bang. Mm. And I think that was in some ways 
because the whole edifice of the general public album, like 48 tracks of digital sound whirring away on every song that never got anywhere near the radio anyway, it seemed overdone. Mm. And so it was kind of like an attempt. At the time, I said, well, there's only four in the Beatles. They did all right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. If you've got got a song, two guitars, bass and drums should be enough. You know, Clash sounded all right. So it was kind of a drive to that. And and also to make a living because uh, the general public, that period, had made a lot of money, but included a lot of taxes too. And I, I enjoyed the idea more of just playing in California weekends and spending time at home, you know. Yeah. But I certainly didn't want to be on tour begging promoters for a gig, mm-hmm. trying, to, trying to reignite the general public. Yeah. That was the thoughts at the time. There's a bit more to the story. I believe it. Followed on. There was meant to be a second album. Really? It was... After Rub It Better? It was written into the contract, unless anybody wanted to do a solo record instead. And I didn't. Mm, I get it. And so somebody was asked, do they want to make a solo record? And they said yes. And that was used to breach the clause in the contract for the second album. So that hurts. That's that's, too bad. That's where your million dollars went. Okay. Got it. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. A a bait and switch. I get it. You know, um I'm first and foremost, we uh we have some Patreon supporters and I always tell them who I'm interviewing and they can submit some questions. So I have a few from them, but before I get to them real quick, one thing I remember in the early days of Napster around 99, 2000, I, like everybody else got really into it. And, uh, I would download, you know, bootleg live versions of you guys. And one of the things I, one song that I still have in my iTunes is, uh, I don't know where it was recorded, but it's some unplugged thing of you doing never die. And you even introduce it. I think it's just you and an acoustic guitar. And then that song, yeah, that song shows up on uh, Here We Go, Love. We said we would never die. But what did we know? Let taken away from me now. How I miss you so. been carrying that song around with you for 20 years or something i thought it was closer to 10 or 12 okay it had been about a number of things it 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 started off and then it it never got finished Mm. it was a bit too sad to finish during the aids epidemic 
my wife was involved in the fashion trade as a model. Mm. And so I not only had just arrived in Los Angeles, but I also was meeting lots of stylists and hairdressers and photographers and makeup artists, all the people around that West Hollywood circle. And then they all started dying. And some years later, I met one of the gang, and we both had to admit to each other that after two or three, we stopped going to the funerals, couldn't take any more funerals, because you'd be looking at the rest of the crowd going, well, who's next then, you know, that sort of thing. It became a bit too much to bear and a bit morbid. And that was the first inception of the song, but really just as a lyric. And then as years went by, it got mixed in with my dad's death and then my mom's death. And then my eldest son getting hit by a car and sitting in the ICU with him. And that was when the song really came to fruition. Some of the music for it in the background was as close as I could get to the sound of assisted breathing. Ooh. The ambulance, yeah. Doppler ambulance. So it was wow. kind of a reflection of sitting in the ICU, holding his hand. He's, he's still with us. Uh, at the time, he was so drastically injured, you didn't know whether to pray for him to get through it or offer him a few more f- feathers in case he needed angel's wings, you know? Quite difficult. Never Die ended up with the melancholy of that situation, the death of both parents, but its initial inception was about becoming too sad to go to any more AIDS funerals. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to listen to it again, knowing everything you just told me. I've always liked (laughs) that song. Um, Okay. First and foremost, Sugar Mouse. I don't know who Sugar Mouse is, but that's a great name for Patreon. Sends over a really interesting question. His understanding was that originally uh, Mick Jones from The Clash was supposed to be a part of general public. Is that true? And if he was, why didn't he join? No, he was never meant to be a a full-time member of the band. We both found ourselves needing something to do. Uh, Me and him had always got on very nicely on the road. Uh, Touring was the beat opening for The Clash. He was starting Big Audio Dynamite and we were starting general public and we traded our skills as it were he agreed to play guitar on all the songs on the album that he liked which was about six of them i think that he thought he could lend his style to and in return he had me and roger come down to their studio and he said that he'd got lots of lyrics he says i've got books full of lyrics but I keep going back for the same melodies. He says, I need some melody ideas. You're good at melodies, aren't you? So he didn't want lyrics, although he got a few thrown in there. But I, I listened to the demos and I, I thought of melodies and la, 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 them. And I went down the studio and la, 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 them or hummed them. And, and you can hear a few of them mm-hmm. uh, that made it onto mm. the big audio dynamite album. It was sort of completely by barter system, but then Big Audio Dynamite were going to do some shows and uh, it looked as though Tenderness was going to be a big song. 
And so he asked me to get him a, a stage carpet made out of AstroTurf, green AstroTurf, marked up like a soccer field. <laughs> but, you know, not to scale. Right. <laughs> and so we did. What? <laughs> they, they, liked, they liked their football a lot. Uh, yeah. Where their studio was, out the window, was a, a hard kind of kids' football thing, and we would we went out there and played football, came back and did some la-la-la and played football again. So oh, I um, I'd never asked him to be a full-time member. Mm. I think Roger was kind of hoping he, mo- he would, and they may well have talked about it. But Other than my, him my understanding, my understanding of it was um, – that we'd help each other starting yeah. new groups up. Okay, which, that makes which sense. Was great for me. I thought I was. Yeah. Really okay, Alan Lewis asked. It's just if Mick Jones had said, "Hey, can I join full time?" I would have said yes. <laughs> True. But, you know, but that wasn't the ever the understanding. It'd be great to do yeah. be uh, general public and a few class songs in the totally. set. You know. Well, and he had his own, you know, Big Audio Dynamite was great too. And they had probably comparable success, maybe. I mean, I think so. yeah, I think you guys did great. Um, okay. Alan Lewis wants to, uh, is asking why uh, general public stuff is not available to download or stream. Now, I should say, I know that the first two general public albums are on Spotify at least because I own them, but I also was streaming them. The right. third one, Rub It Better, is not on there. Your sing- your solo album, No Warning, is on there. Is not on there. Is this some kind of contractual thing with RRS or something? What's the deal? No, I think it was uh, a bit later on than that. And some question about who owned the rights mm-hmm. as it went skipped from one corporation to another. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was only recently resolved in the last few years. But at the moment... Both catalogues are in between record deals. There had been an intent over the last year or so to sell some or part of the catalogue, very popular at the moment. Uh, But unfortunately, Roger died. That set things back quite a long time. And then, sadder still again, uh, recently Everett, the drummer, died in November, December. And so his estate is having to go through loads of stuff to get that sorted out. Mm. And the sale seems kind of more or less agreed, but it's two years after we thought it was going to be for the time it's done. And the records are in limbo at the moment because of that. The old record deals had finished, Mm. and this new one has now been set back twice. Okay. Uh, So there are some – there is some talk – of doing short-term deals just to keep the catalogue available with the labels we were with previously on the understanding that if this sale deal comes through, uh, we'll be able to sell it within a certain amount of days, you know? Okay. Uh, Everybody seems to have agreed on that, more or less now. Mm -hmm. And one of those things would be that the songs would then become available for streaming. Mm -hmm. So that might be in the next few weeks or months. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's been, it's been so tortuous. Yeah, sounds like it. This whole process. Um, and two more deaths. It's like, yeah, you know, Saxer as well. So all the yeah. black members of the beat are dead. Mm-hmm. Half the band's dead. 
It's so sad. Um, Okay. Brian Weingarten lives in Southern California and um, good choice. Yeah. (laughs) He was curious why uh, it was that uh, general public took off in the States, but well, first and foremost, he assumes that general public and English beat are both bigger in the U S than they were in the UK. And why then was general public vaulted to become really big when songs off special beat service like Save It For Later or End Of The Party. She said to leave it to the end of the party. Do it now, you know there's never a next time. How come the feeling that it's always just started? Pull back your cover, I could love you for all time. But do it now, you know there's never a next time. like I said earlier, kind of incorporating some Motown in, in, you know, along the line, you can, you can see a path from those songs to tenderness. Yeah. Why didn't special beat service get more attention? Well, I mean, it, it, it broke us with, I confess and save it for later. That mm. It did much better business in America than the first album did. Did it? Okay. I wasn't sure. In, over the intervening years, the first ones caught up. But it, it was, in some ways, it was our breakthrough album, mm. mainly due to the singles, of I Confess, and um, the videos, really, Save It Flavor and I Confess, uh, that elevated us. Tenderness was the next step on from that. All of a sudden, you found yourself selling as many records a day as you were selling a month or in a week. You know, it's like, mm. whoa, as soon as those big top 40 stations got on a song, sales just exploded. The first album was by far and away the biggest album in England. Mm. It had um, six six top 30 BBC hits on it. And then when Can't Get Used to Losing You was brought out when the band split up, uh, it became seven, uh, which was one more than Michael Jackson.
a scar diminished. In England, the, the big fashion wave of it, like Wappen didn't do as good. The special Beat Service didn't do that well at all in the UK. The Scar fans had moved on, and the Scar fans who'd stayed didn't find Special Beat Service Scar enough for their yeah, taste. Makes sense. And uh, at the same time, I confess and save it for later, elevated us up to a, a different level of radio station. Mm. And now, at the height of um, MTV, you know, I think Roger was either the first or one of the first black artists on MTV, you know. And that catapulted it into a completely different world from just uh, radio promo and going around and meeting DJs and playing acoustic versions, you know. The videos set, the whole market was different. That's probably as much to do with it as anything else, I think. Well, I've saved it for later and I confess probably more accessible to American ears at the Maybe. time. Than yeah. the was. I'd be interested to see. I haven't looked. I don't know whether Special Beat Service is still outsold. I just can't stop it here in the States. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know either. Um, I wanted to ask you about I Confess. I Confess might be your crowning achievement to me personally. Um, and the main reason I say that is because of the arrangement, first and foremost, it, to go from a ska band that you were, one of the best there ever was, to begin this beautiful pop song with piano introduction. There's yeah. tablas happening in there. There's great production. There's bass. Um, who who produced that? When you when you fit when you're writing that song on your bed in Birmingham or wherever. Is this how you're imagining it turning out like it did? Because it's so grand. It started off from a different place. It's, it's the only song written by Blockhead, the piano player. He wrote the original oh. tune. Uh, interesting chap, six foot four, skinhead, was our lighting guy originally. 
one of, on the lighting crew, and Saxo was ill. <laughs> me mm. sick man, me sick man. <laughs> <laughs> Self-inflicted liquid wounds. Right. <laughs> couldn't play a show. And Blockhead was in the dressing room. He said, well, I don't know if it's any help to you, he said, but I know all of Sax's solos on piano. We're like, what? Skinhead lighting guy. Mm. He said, well, he said, I play classical piano, he said, and, and I love Sax's playing. He said, so I've just as a kind of hobby, he said, I've, I've learned how to play them on a, on a keyboard. Uh, he said, because the intervals he uses, it's just that nice. It's lovely to get to play it. I was like, and I used to do the same. I used to hum them. I still can. I can sing most of Sax's solos. Mm, uh, they're beautiful. They are. So he, it turned out he'd been a geography teacher in the Caribbean and had learned to play Calypso as well. So he did do that gig and filled in a saxo solos on a Farfisa organ mm. and it was pretty good it's pretty good Bob Sargent had played keyboards uh, Bob Sargent just passed as well in November Bob Sargent had played Hammond mainly on the album whenever keyboards were required and so Blockhead came in and started doing those lines as well or adding skanks or adding his classical and his calypso sensibilities and uh, he came up with the, the original. <laughs> he came up with that bit. And uh, David Steele added incredibly uh, inventive bass lines, a variety of different bass lines, you know, uh, that really set the song on fire. I think it was his idea to add tabla as well. It went around my head for the lyrics for about, about six or nine months as it, it built up. And... There was a, a a grand, almost grandiose feel to it. And so I let the emotion of the lyrics go in the same way as well. Mm. And uh, by the time the song came out, the uh, new romantics were a bit of a, bit a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was sort of getting a bit overdone as well. It was all getting a bit too grandiose. And so I decided to be Heathcliff in the video. I thought if we're going to take this to the nth degree, so that's why I'm in a, a black cape, howling <laughs> at the moon, <laughs> flames in the background. You're wearing a lot of makeup or a lot of eye makeup, yes. especially in that video. They did do that a bit, you know, I think. And you weren't aware of it until you saw it, by which time it was too late. Never you'd done that was the worst for that. Really? And you've always got some, like, over-attentive mate. Oh, let me just get this. And I'm like, nah, not too much slap, mate. Not too- no, no, I know what I'm doing. You need <laughs> to look like this way for the camera. And then you go, oh, you look like a rent boy. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> Never you'd done that was worse. All of us, the guy just went nuts. Oh, and you've got, you've got no mirrors, so you don't know. You- you take them at their word. Are you sure you need to put? Yes, it's because it's shining a bit. It's shining. <laughs> I'm just touching this up. I'm just, and they just get. They're really. They're doing more of a performance than you are. Let me just get this. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh but then yes, at least with the. I confess, I'd put on my own coal stick. Okay. You know, sticks with the, but then of course they had to touch up and touch. So th- there was a lot going on. Uh, yeah. Whose three lives did you ruin? I mean, when I say that, I mean, I know, like, are those, it's you and two real people? Was that based on a real story or is this? 
No, not really. Okay. Not okay. Really. Just uh, curious. Hypothetical. Uh, but it probably happens more times than I'd like oh. to imagine as I'm falling out with somebody and, 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 and hooking up with somebody else. So it's, it's a, a, a transitional tale, yeah. probably. But yeah. there was no, no specifics. It was trying to be hyped up as the music was. It, uh-huh. was, it was trying to be really strident and hearts beating. You know, uh, it worked. So the, the lyric was more of a, a storyline rather than this is what I did on Tuesday. Okay. And some songs, Hands Off, She's Mine, was about me, somebody else and a girl in real life. I confess, wasn't okay. Just curious. Speaking of hooking up, when you when you and Roger paired off for general public, and like Andy and Dave go do fine young cannibals and stuff, were were those clicks within the English beat already formed? I mean, like, good question. Yes, me and Roger okay. were roommates, and David and Andy were roommates. Okay. And now I suppose as as more dear friends friends are gone. I can say a little bit more about it, perhaps. David wanted a couple of years off, yeah. and he was probably right. We'd, we'd worked incredibly hard, more or less nonstop, either touring or making records or promoting them. And he, he put it quite well. He said, more planes than buses nowadays. Mm. And he had a hankering. He wanted to go home. He wanted to walk to the corner shop and buy milk. And he just wanted to live so as that he could start writing songs about his life again and was worried that, you know, we'd seen ourselves opening for The Clash, how a punk band venting at the 100 Club in London could quite easily turn into a super stadium US rock act. And he said he was worried that we'd start writing songs about rolling down Rock and Roll Boulevard. Mm. instead of writing about our lives. And so he wanted some time off. Me and Roger had just had our first kid each, and we'd shared everything pretty equally in the beat. So nobody was particularly wealthy, and um, we couldn't afford to take two years off, mm-hmm. the, the short of it. But also, our rhythm section had started to slip live, particularly. You'd feel like there was a choice of where you had to sing here or there, you know, Mm. and it had become apparent that 
weren't really listening to each other. And there was a question about whether Everett was good enough to keep the job. And I didn't want to deal with that. I thought we should just rehearse more, you know. Um, I was trying to get rehearsals together to play this song, Tenderness, I'd got, but it was very difficult to get a rehearsal going at all, ever. We got called down to Virgin Records and they said, you've spent six months finding reasons not to do this record deal. We think the beat's done, but we'd like to offer you a deal if you're interested. And I said, well, I probably am. They said, who would you want to work with? And I said, well, David Steele's the genius. Mm. And he said, yes, but he's the difficult one as well. <laughs> what about that Roger? You and Roger, that's a good look. We think something could work there. And I said, yes. About 10 years ago, the cocktail bar in San Francisco, after a couple of stiff ones, our friend Tarquin told me that he'd set the whole thing up with the record company at Virgin. He'd taught them into being Ian Roger because Tarquin was trying to was trying to manage us at the time. Yeah. And every time, every time we got close to a deal, David still came up with three more deal breakers. <laughs> Tarquin couldn't stand working with him. <laughs> so he wanted him out and he wanted Roger in. And he got the record company to sell it to me. Wow. Um, and and the legend was born. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but um, you'll note that Andy and David never worked with Everett again. No, and they barely ever worked again. It was like the one fine young, that second fine young cannibal album was almost like winning the lottery. And it's, you know, those songs still get played a lot. I'm guessing they have been, it, it afforded them the right to be as anonymous as it sounded like they wanted to in the first place. It bought them their anonymity because they've never done anything since that I know of. David Steele had a good album, uh, a band called Fried with a, a, a woman singer from New Orleans, black woman singer from New Orleans. Oh, that was I don't even know about that. I should get it. Okay. It was a great record, but it didn't seem to do very much. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Andy had a couple of projects. It went down in history, really, that I'd split up the beat. And, I, you know, on the surface, yes. But to be honest, the beat was already done. Yeah, they were fractured. It was already done. The rhythm section never worked together again. Now, if the beat was still ongoing, when me and Roger left, the other three of them would have carried on and got Roland Gifting. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. They got a different drummer. So the fears of getting caught in the situation where we had to discuss whether Everett should stay in the group or not. Mm. I kind of fight or flighted it and took the first opportunity out. And also I couldn't afford two years off. Yeah, that makes sense. A couple more questions. When I had talked to Roger, I mean, it was clear that for a while there, Roger was going to be the beat in the UK. You were going to be the beat in the US. And the thing that I tried to press him on that I never quite came around to understanding was why can't, you guys do that, but then every other year make a bucket of money by coming together and playing a couple of summer festivals and then go uh, back and do your separate things. Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> <laughs> I've never understood that. I just thought this is so obvious. You could make so much money. Get the two of you guys together for just a summer and then go off and do your own things for a while. 
I wanted to do is the 40th anniversary of the album. And I said, you don't have to do a lot of shows. I said, like 20 would be enough. 10 in America and 10 in England would be good enough. I said, it'd be, it'd be a good thing to do because the fans always ask me for it, you know. Mm-hmm. When are you and Roger going to do some shows together? Mm-hmm. And I said, I think it would be a good thing to do. And he agreed with me. But Tarquin Gotch talked him out of it because <laughs> he was now managing him. And Tarquin. it became quite a war because I'd said, what if you be the beat in England, I'll be the English beat in, in America. And whenever we visit each other's country, we work with each other on them shows. So if you come to America, you join my band. If I come to England, I join your band. Fantastic, he said. Great idea. Really grateful and happy that I'd come up with this plan. And uh, as is often the case, musicians can be quite genuine and heartfelt, but managers can get them to see the world a different way uh, because it might be worth more money to them, perhaps, or who knows? or it might be easier to do or something, who knows? And so we made that an agreement, and it wasn't very long afterwards that his manager at the time was trying to book him as the English beat in America, original lineup. Yeah. At the same places where I was doing, then even tried to fight, they just looked where I was doing gigs and tried to book gigs there. And the clubs were phoning me and saying, we, you know, we love you, but you can't play twice in the same month. <laughs> I said, well, I wouldn't dream of asking. Mm. Well, what I've got here, I said, oh, God, I've got a fax here. And I said, read the number at the top. I was like, by any chance, is the code 01144121? Yes. I said, that's Birmingham, England. Uh, And so the word was never really kept. It was never really Roger's fault. But some stuff was done on his behalf. Oh, I don't know nothing about that. I'll let the managers get on with that, Dave. You know me. It was a a little bit too convenient. And uh, some of it became quite uh, virulent uh, for a while there. But they kept plowing away with it and saying, like, we should do a few shows together. And he'd always say yes. And then it didn't happen. It was so confusing uh, for me as someone who's just dying to see the two of you. That's why when I first started the podcast seven years ago, Getting Roger was like, that was my holy grail because we in the States, we get to hear and see you, but we don't get to hear and see Roger hardly at all. And so there were some terrific offers. Yeah. At least in America, there were some really big offers to play well-established festivals that probably neither of us would have been able to get on. Well, I couldn't, so he probably couldn't. We couldn't get on individually, but they would have us as, something of a you know reunion rarity special event to add some extra power to the festival it never happened and the last time was sad because not long later he was dead yeah and you can't actually, you can't help but think mm-hmm. that if we both had the opportunity now mm-hmm. we'd love to do a couple of shows together yeah it's breaks and, my heart invite everett and saxa yeah Oh, so it hurts. One of the times the producer, it's ridiculous. One of the times I saw you and I saw you in concert. It was, I'll never forget it. It was you and ABC and naked eyes. And you were performing in a park in Springville, Utah. And, um, 
I remember that too. It was great. It was. And I remember this was before social media. This was, I mean, if you wanted to know what a band was doing, you had to look for it yourself because it wasn't, mm-hmm. that information was not coming to you. Right. I live in Denver and I was at work. I worked at IBM at the time. And I remember like, where, where did ABC go? Where did, whatever happened to ABC? And I Google ABC and I see they're playing the next day oh, in wow. Utah with you and, and Pete from Naked Eyes. And I'm from Utah. And I immediately tell my boss, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I have to drive to Utah tomorrow to see one of the best triple bills I've ever, I could imagine. Sure enough, the next morning I hop in the car, I drive straight to that park. I saw that show. And I remember Linville from the specials was in your band at the time. That's right. And you had announced, guess what, guys, we're going to get everybody back together. Roger, everyone, it's happening. And then it never did. And I, I, I mean, I banked on that what you told me that day for years, just waiting for it to happen. And it never worked out. I kept trying and I kept trying. And uh, I think it was a mistake not to do it, especially if it was a limited run, a a different matter. If you were to say, Oh, let's all jump back in together, like the good old days. But exactly as you put it, that was, was my plan for it. Mm -hmm. And in his heart, Roger was up for it. Yeah. I could tell a couple of times that we had done a show together he said to me oh we we haven't lost the magic then because we'd do a little dance move and turn and he'd be like oh my gosh it's body memory you know it's programmed and he said oh we haven't lost the magic then but it it did become quite political like it had done in the uh, general public and solo album days or rainy days roger had come awful close but he'd never done a hit himself Never You Done That, which I think is one of the best songs I've ever been on. He wrote the music for that. Or Did he really? He wrote okay. the music for that. Very simple, naive, innocent sounding chord progression. And Mickey Billingham, the piano player we had, uh, stretched it out and made it a, a more complicated thing. But I, I thought that was really probably the best song me and Roger had written together. When, uh, if that, I remember right, when I had him on, he I think he said Never Not Alone was him as well. And he was especially proud, if I'm... I remember correctly that he, whatever he did, he did something in that song that he was. Yeah, he wrote the music for that one. Yeah. He wrote the music for that one too.
to start with, he would give me demos and I'd say, oh, this is your best bit, isn't it? These, oh, that's a cracking line, that is. It, the songs wouldn't necessarily have choruses. They didn't have a hook line. So it was just a different line each time. There wasn't a repeating chorus. So I would go hunting for them in his lyrics. And I said, well, that's, that's ch 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 checking the post, checking the post, checking the post. That's your, that's your title, Ennis, you know, finding the little phrases that would be good sound bombs or mind bombs and then help him craft the rest of his lyrics around that. And uh, that worked quite well. But then as he got his own home studio, he'd play me the demos and they'd already be sung on. Mm. There'd be like three tracks of tambourine already. It was like, <laughs> so any, I'd say, well, you know what I think? Oh, really? I really like that bit, Dave. Well, okay. Mm -hmm. And this next bit here, what about if you would, oh, I really like that bit though. Mm -hmm. well, okay. Mm -hmm. And he went on for a few weeks <laughs> and, uh, he said, have you had a chance to listen to those songs anymore? And I said, yeah, I have. He said, what do you think? I said, you don't want to know what I think. <laughs> I said, that all I can do is listen to them. I said, I haven't come up with one idea that fits, I said, because you've worked on them so hard yourself. You've got everything just the way you feel it, that anything else sounds like a mistake now. I said, so I can have a go like I did on the last set of songs or – you just have to go for it, you know. And uh, that's where Radical Departure came from and mm -hmm. why I thought it was so funny that it's kicked off with a set of my lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> it's Independence Day. <laughs> I get to sing Dave's songs by myself now. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh, oh, man. It came, but it, it, came from, it came from a sweet place. He wanted to prove to me he could do it. He thought I that he couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I thought he did it best when we did it together, but he yeah. wanted to show me really yeah. that he could write the music and the words and it could still be a hit. Yeah. And whether it was the song general public or rainy days or in conversation, mm -hmm. sadly, all the tunes that got up to being singles didn't break through. Yeah.
to be said probably in that white 80s pop world oh. probably a little bit harder for a black artist with a lead vocal in those times true plenty of black artists in black music doing very well yeah but but not as many black lead singers doing great by themselves in the white 80s no pop world not in america especially i mean if they aren't singing yeah, yeah, if they're not singing R&B songs, I can't imagine white American audiences knowing what to do with a black man singing alternative rock songs at the time. Not really. Not really. Yeah. Not yeah. really. Uh, yes, it, it caught between genres. Yeah. Probably, you That's know. It. But then again, I thought they were good, but they weren't great. Mm-hmm. They weren't as good as the hits we'd had, you no. know. Uh, no. They didn't resonate as, yeah. as much as, as that. And sadly, as it went on, Roger was less uh, willing to work together. Mm. He wanted to, you can't blame him, you know, he no. wanted to, he wanted to Call write his own shots. completely, start to finish, have it come out and be a hit. Mm-hmm. He'd seen me do it, mm-hmm. save it for later in tenderness, particularly in mm-hmm. those recent times. And he wanted to do it too. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't quite. Yeah. It didn't happen. You know, the the songs were well accepted. They got played on the radio, but they never turned into radio hits. Mm -hmm. So they never turned into sales. Yeah. And the album that came on the back of those singles suffered Mm -hmm. because of that. Yeah. uh, I think. Yeah, Um, it did. Um, We're we're almost done. I, I am curious. You are perpetually on tour. It seems like, I mean, I've well, seen you like, a, well, you would, that's what I was going to say. So um, we try to sensitively touch on the business side of things on here. I know songs like tenderness still get played a lot. You probably have decent mailbox money from that and save it for later. And a bunch of the other ones too, but I'm it's guessing a large come again. Yeah. It's kept me going, but oh, um, kept you going. I think you said come again. I was like, that <laughs> makes you a lot of money. I had no idea. No, uh, I wish it kept my head above water. Uh-huh. And I'm really glad that the touring season is about to start again. Having said that, I haven't done it in a while. Uh, I've done a few shows. It took me a minute to get back up to. It turns out really that doing that amount of shows is what kept me fit. Mm, I believe it. Is it kept my endurance, my health, much better condition than it would have been? And although I've tried either walking the dogs or the treadmill or swimming or something. Um, I haven't really done anything that's as intense as 90 minutes sweating of course. And, and pulling for air in the last 15, you know, it's quite a workout. And then we, we did some shows. It was okay. We had only a couple, but we thought it was going to be safe again by the end of last year. So we booked some shows. So fix. the band, I was going to come see you with the fix. Oh, that yes, the March tour. Well, we cancelled that one, and and they ended up cancelling before the end of the tour because guess what? Oh, people got the night yeah. before the show. I was going to go, and it was Delta at that time. But though, just this recent December, it looked as though Delta was on its way out, and Beta hadn't, Omicron, sorry, hadn't was still on the east coast. They thought it was going to be a few weeks. So we risked some gigs and we all got it. Ah. Probably all the same night. Mm-hmm. 
we were all sick within two or three days and had to cancel the New Year's Eve show um, and a few others around it. So my birthday weekend this weekend, and I, uh, I'm starting to do shows again. Okay. Uh, I was only sick with the Omicron for a couple of days. Oh, really? Two shots, and I'd got the booster shot. Mm-hmm. And I really only had symptoms for a couple of days, a couple of nights sweating, uh, one morning sneezing, mm-hmm. and the next day feeling a little congested. Mm-hmm. And then all the symptoms disappeared. And I was like, wow. But I'm still waiting to get better for about, that was, it started December 26th. I finally tested negative January 17th. And um, it's only really this week that I've felt something akin to normal energy. I've just been like really, really fatigued. Yeah, back pains, cramps in my, just weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um neurological misfires it seems it's uh setting things off and uh anything that you've ever had as an illness in your past omicron seems to give that a bit of a twitch as well you know it's like oh that's come back <laughs> and they're quite bad back pains that only seem to be disappearing which i just saw a, from an english report uh 20% of omicron uh contractors are reporting lower back pain. Which really? Goes, yeah. 20% of them in England and out of, a, out of a huge sample as well. It was in at number 17 in the symptoms. <laughs> oh, that, I caught it around the same time you did. I think millions of people caught it over Christmas because we all yeah. finally got back together. Yeah. And I was sick for about a week with same as you, heavy congestion, the sneezing and all that stuff. Then it went away, but I was still sick for another good week and a half with just general fatigue, walking up and down stairs, loading yeah. a dishwasher, walking across the house. Would I would have to take a nap. I'd be so wasted after that. There's a lot of napping involved. But I have a lot of lower back pain right now, and uh, I've been fine for a month. Maybe that's why. Yeah, 20% of um, people reporting uh They've got, I forget what it's called now, but they've got a this organization where people send in their symptoms and then they tabulate them. Mm. And they've got about four or five million people in England who've all done it, sending in these symptoms. And they were the first ones to spot that Omicron was a completely different set of symptoms from Delta. Mm-hmm. And just this week, <laughs> I was watching him. And he said, yeah, and he, he'd got lower back pain. And he said, and looking through the figures, he said, it's in at number 17, like it was a chart. In at number 17, said 20% of respondents are complaining about lower back pain. Oh, yes, I know. Awful. It, it happened to the, me the once on stage. It was like, oh, no. Yeah. I have shame or fall over, you know. So I'm excited about doing the gigs again. I've been trying to take care of myself and build up the energy for it. But I, I hope I hope it's going to be okay. It might take a few shows to build up the stamina again, I think. The last two shows I did, second one went better than the first, which was a good okay. song. First one went okay until about the 75-minute mark. Then I got a stitch in my side. I got cramp in one calf, and my lower back started hurting a lot. Oof. And I was like... But you're so embarrassed, you can't stop. You're <laughs> grinning. This is great. 
<laughs> so Especially at a high energy show like the Beep, you know. Yeah, and it was just the last fifteen minutes was nightmarish. I came off stage and just like fell into the corner. Oh, I don't want to do this. It hurts. Uh, but then the next night was better. So I think it's just a matter of getting used to it. They say it's like riding a bike, which I don't do very much anymore either. <laughs> um, okay, last question and then one final statement. And I, I, I don't know how to ask this without sounding insensitive, and I don't or too personal. I don't mean to. I'd never noticed this before. I glanced at your Wikipedia page, and it said back in 1985 you said you were bisexual. And you had mentioned that your girlfriend and your wife, and I know you have kids and all that kind of stuff. I'm not asking because I oh, care one way or the other. I'm curious. I've never heard that about you. It was more, it was more a political opinion at the time. Mm. Um, I hadn't really had any thoughts about it. Once AIDS showed yeah, that's up. That's when you were talking about AIDS earlier, I thought. I once wonder once if he... AIDS showed up, I became a lot less exploratory. <laughs> <laughs> right. And still to this day, it just became a habit. And uh, it, it was an exploration, but more from the late 70s. Mm-hmm. But it was a gay magazine I was doing an interview with. Mm-hmm. So I sort of declared myself mm-hmm. as I politi- politically bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the, the bit in the interview that... Um, showed up big was a kiss is just a kiss it's just the mustache tickles a bit more is what i said <laughs> and you know i was trying to be nice <laughs> <laughs> trying to be nice um trying to be supportive in a way because uh, there'd been quite a backlash hadn't there with the aids absolutely you know it's a, it's yeah. a, it hardened some opinions totally um, so i was trying to be a team player but to be honest I hadn't played on that team for about four or five years. AIDS completely. I lived in complete fear of it. They called it fades, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Looking at every door handle. Like, what if somebody, oh, did I just, oh, my I God, know. what if I still dance with that? Oh, God, how do they know? I, know. I had complete fades at the time. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I, uh, Okay. I wasn't sure. Still, I didn't know that. And, in Wikipedia and, uh, and I still remain the same. Uh, Politically, mm-hmm. uh, bisexual, although physically not, and still the AIDS to me would be mm-hmm. enough to put me off that. So people are very brave, aren't they? But um, yeah, I was just curious. I didn't know that about you, and you'd mentioned so many things in here that spoke to how that could have been an extra layer of, you know, depth or whatever to who you are as a person. I, I just think wanted to ask. it doesn't much in the lyrics. Yeah. I think, I think that the lyrics are pretty well heterosexual. Mm-hmm. I was a pretty boy. So I'd, I'd, I'd have people try and chat me up, you know, you were. Yeah. I, I didn't have to sort of go hunting. So uh, men would yeah. sometimes buy me a drink, you know, my one friend, he would have liked to have gone out with me, but we didn't. He did end up the nanny for my kids. Really? And, uh, did a fantastic job, fantastic job. But Doors of Your Heart came from an original idea of peace.
feel of them at the doors of your arse again. At the doors of your arse again. You can feel <laughs> of the bum bum. Oh, no way. <laughs> that was his... That was his dirty mind putting words in my mouth, really. But anyway, Genius. That, that's, that's as good play. as Tutti Frutti. Oh, I love it. Well, Dave, listen, uh, you are so kind to talk to me for so long. I was, again, this is the reason that I was getting emotional at the beginning. It occurred to me that I think the day I discovered what is beat in my cousin's CD collection, Ooh. I think that was probably the second most impactful musical moment of my life. I, uh, Quick story, I've told it before, but I'm the oldest in my family. My cousins were older than me. My cousin Rick is two years older. He got a CD player right when they became big, and he had a bunch of CDs, and they were all classic rock, a lot of like The Who and Grateful Dead and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I looked up to him, and I was 12 or 13 years old, and I went in his room, and Jethro Tull's Songs from the Wood was playing, Mm -hmm. and it blew my mind, and I love Jethro Tull to this day. But what it did for me that I realized is that it it t- opened my mind to music that sounded specifically English. And that there was a... Now, I know the English beat and Jethro Tull don't have anything to do with each other, except that you can tell they come from the same place, English. at least to yeah. me. Yes, that's right. And they had and, quite a lot of the folk element, didn't they? English. Yes. So uh, it it turned my brain on to music that was coming from England. Right. And I remember pulling out the What Is Beat CD, which was general public was big at the time. And I turned it over and I said, there's Roger and Dave. I know these guys from general. What is this? What's the English beat? I don't know. Right. And it so it cemented this new interest of music that is uniquely British to me. And that's what led to the Smiths and Echo and the Bunny Men and New Order and all those other bands. And it was the discovery of English beat that changed my life forever. And so you're one of the most important people in my life there's ever been because of what you did. You turned that smashing. I did. I did. And it was thanks to Dave and Roger. It really was. So I'm sorry you didn't get to see a Dave and Roger show before the curtain came down. Coming up to his birthday, too, on the 22nd of February. Oh, wow. Um, used to, uh, mine on the 19th, uh, my wife on the 20th, and Roger on the 22nd, and wow. um, my wife at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, we spent uh, one birthday all together that was, was mm-hmm. great fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's like when you, you remember it, it was it's your mum's birthday. Mm-hmm. And it brings back. Uh, My mum's is on the 27th. So also a Feb- close February birthday. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Dave. I just yeah. couldn't love you more. I mean, you've been a huge part of my life since I became. Good job we managed to speak before, whilst we're still both here. <laughs> I know. I didn't want to let that opportunity pass me by. All right, there you have it. Dave Wakeling, the man himself. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it wasn't too much for the people who are sort of the uninitiated, but it meant a lot to me. Uh, Again, I just love him. And to spend two hours with him chit-chatting about life, his life, their careers, questions I've always wondered, behind-the-scenes stories of albums and, and moments and songs and everything like that, means a lot to me. He is He is not appreciated as a songwriter as much as he should be the cleverness 
the melodies, the influences that he brings in, the wordplay. Not many people can do what Dave Wakeling does, and he doesn't get enough credit for it, I don't think. I didn't intend to open and start this episode with two general public songs, but Burning Bright right here, this is the one I'm kind of just feeling today. I don't know. I love this song, and it just felt like the right mood, the right moment for me. Well, we have been focusing, as you guys know, on a lot of kind of like British New Wave lately, or just New Wave in general, I should say. Next week is one of the pillars of British alternative rock of the 80s and 90s. And frankly, it's a person we don't hear from very often. They don't do a lot of interviews. Um, so I'm pretty psyched about this one, too. That's coming up next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy. Uh, you guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We uh, are due to record a recap here pretty soon, so that may be out in the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm not sure. But anyway, we love you all. Thank you.